Welcome to episode 15 of the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, a show about politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, the United States of America, and America's team, the Jacksonville Jaguars, defeaters of the Tennessee Titans, vanquishers of the Los Angeles Chargers, and, well, probably losers to the Kansas City Chiefs on Saturday, but we'll see. Trevor Lawrence has played 37 games on Saturdays, and he's never lost one, so who knows. If nothing else, a reliance on entirely meaningless statistics will get me through this week's game. But I don't want to talk about football, at least not yet. I want to start today's show by talking about hockey. And in particular, by talking about Ivan Provorov, who plays for the Philadelphia Flyers, and who caused a great ruckus this week by, well, by not saying or doing anything. That's right. Ivan Provorov's big crime was doing nothing, which, in the year... 2023 is apparently a terrible embarrassment. For those of you who missed this story, here's a recap of it from the sports website, sometimes, The Athletic. This was written by a guy named Charlie O'Connor, and I've chosen it because it both explains what happened in the case and it highlights the totalistic worldview that has crept into so much of American journalism in recent years. So here's a story from The Athletic. On Tuesday night, 20 Philadelphia Flyers players, as expected, hit the ice for 6.30pm warm-ups in anticipation of their game against the Anaheim Ducks. But one player didn't. Ivan Provorov. O'Connor continues, Provorov, as a rule, doesn't miss games. His only three NHL absences were mandated by league-wide COVID-19 protocols, not due to injury. So when Provorov didn't hit the ice, wearing the pride jerseys donned by all of his teammates in honor of Flyers' Pride Night, in celebration and support of the LGBTQ community, it raised eyebrows, especially because only a little over an hour before, Flyers head coach John Tortorella said there would be no changes to his lines and pairs from the night before. Now, just as an aside, note the weasel words O'Connor uses there. It raised eyebrows. Whose eyebrows? Does O'Connor mean his? If he does, he should say so. Anyhow. He continues, eyebrows were further raised. Yep, there's more phantom eyebrows being passively raised. Eyebrows were further raised when Provorov hit the ice. A lot of ice hitting in this piece. 
like normal just minutes before puck drop and was announced as part of the lineup. Was there a connection between the team-wide Pride Night gesture and Provorov's absence from warm-ups? Yup. Then O'Connor goes on to quote Provorov, who said, I respect everybody and I respect everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion, Provorov said after the game in explaining his decision to sit out warm-ups, declining any further comment on the situation. That's all I'm going to say. So, I read that, and I say, great. It's a free country. To me, everything in that statement is an endorsement of pluralism. Look at his language. I respect everybody, and I respect everybody's choices. Great. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. Great. That's all I'm going to say. Great. In a free country, that's how things should be. Some people think one thing. Other people think another. We all have to share a living space, so let's agree to disagree. But apparently, that's not good enough anymore. Why not? Well, here's O'Connor explaining why not. The problem, however, is that through Provorov's actions or non-actions, the Flyers as a team and organization were not being strong advocates for inclusivity, as the Flyers claimed. One of their highest profile players, due to an unwillingness to wear a jersey for about 20 minutes before a game, made that impossible. It turned their entire night, complete with a blowout 5-2 victory, into a shell of its intended self and an embarrassing episode. End quote. Did it? How? Have we really reached the point at which someone's non-actions, that's O'Connor's phrase, not mine, are deemed unacceptable. Because if we have, we've crossed the Rubicon. O'Connor is angry here because Ivan Provorov declined to engage in speech. He's angry because Ivan Provorov doesn't agree with him. That is madness. And, of course, it wasn't just O'Connor whose eyebrows were dancing away. Far from it. On Twitter, a guy named Gord Miller, who covers hockey for the Sports Network in Canada, among other outlets, wrote, 1. Ivan Provorov had the right to refuse to participate in the Pride Night activities in Philadelphia. 2. The Flyers should have responded by not allowing him to play in the game. 3. Freedom of expression doesn't give you freedom from the consequences of your words or actions. But this assumes far, far too much. Why should there have been consequences for this in the first place? Why should the Flyers have responded by not allowing him to play in the game? He didn't do anything. 
quite literally, he declined to do anything. He didn't stop anyone from speaking or protesting or playing hockey. He didn't interrupt or get in the way or argue. He didn't hurt anyone. He didn't berate his teammates or his rivals or the fans or anyone else for that matter. He just declined to engage in speech with which, for whatever reason, he disagrees. He literally stayed in the locker room. And he's supposed to be cut from the team for that? This is fanaticism. It is of a piece with punishing people for clapping with insufficient vigor or for deviating from party orthodoxy by half a degree. And given recent events, it's also wildly hypocritical. How many of the people calling for Provorov to be punished said the same of Colin Kaepernick, who, you will recall, did not just stay in the locker room, but actively staged a protest? The answer is none. And in fact, the opposite's true. Back when the NFL was dealing with the kneeling controversy, staying in the locker room was the compromise position. Far from being punished for it, the players who objected to the national anthem were encouraged to opt out, which for a while, many of them did. And those who criticized that position in the press, those who criticized that compromise, did so because they thought it didn't go far enough. That active protest should be protected. But now, just a few years later, opting out is unacceptable. We can't go on like this. You simply cannot have a country that is home to people with all manner of different views if you're going to start lambasting and punishing people for staying quiet. There's no good reason for our major sports leagues to host political spectacles in the first place. But if they're going to, they cannot punish those who decline to attend. The point of hockey is hockey. And in a meritocracy, in which the important question is whether you're good at hockey, you're going to have people who are profoundly different from one another in all realms other than their ability to play hockey to a high level. Now, in my view, that's good. You should want a great diversity of views. But even if you don't agree, you should at least be willing to permit the dissenters to opt out. And of all things, you should be willing to indulge silence. Everyone should. A tolerance for silence should, in almost every imaginable circumstance, be the default position. Silence is the last refuge of the dissenter. Without silence as an option, there is no privacy. 
There is no conscience. There is no integrity. There is nothing. There's just endless war of all against all and a whole bunch of stupidity to boot. And now a brief interruption while my kids shout Duval. My guest today is Billy Binion, who is an associate editor at Reason magazine and who has been writing for nearly a year now about one of the most infuriating, but until the last few days at least, undercovered stories in the United States. That's the story of 94-year-old Geraldine Tyler, who through no great fault of her own, has become something of a poster child for flagrant government overreach. Billy, welcome to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thanks for having me. So the reason that Geraldine Tyler's story has come back into the news today is that about a year after you first started working on it, the Supreme Court agreed to take up the case. Now, I want to ask you about that development, but first... I think you ought to start right from the beginning and tell me and my listeners why Geraldine Tyler's name ever made it into the news in the first place and why it matters. What what happened here? Sure. So in 2010, Geraldine Tyler uh, vacated her Minneapolis condo, which she owned because of some, I guess, kind of unsettling events in the neighborhood, not just in her building, but there was also a nearby shooting that left her feeling very uneasy. Um, as you mentioned, she's quite old and just didn't feel just didn't feel safe there anymore. So she went um, and rented an apartment. She now lives in an assisted living facility, but she could not finance both her rent and the property taxes on the condo that she owned. So she accrued what was about a twenty three hundred dollar property tax debt. And so the local government then added on thirteen thousand dollars in penalties, interests, and fees, which I will add is a five hundred fifty percent increase. Um, and to satisfy that debt, because obviously since she couldn't pay the $2,300, she can't pay you know, what, what is now $15,000. So they seized her condo, sold it, and then kept the profit. So I'll add that no one you know, legally is making the argument that the government doesn't have the right to seize a property to collect a debt. I mean, people across this country will continue to debate property taxes, if they should exist, how much they should be, how much the government should be able to add on in these penalties and interest and fees. You know, we'll hear those debates at local city council meetings, and and it's a good debate to have. But what is at stake here is, you know, is it constitutional for the government in order to satisfy a debt to not only take the property, but then to keep the profits? So here there was a $25,000 profit after the government had satisfied the debt that Ms. Tyler owed, and they kept it all. So let me get this right. Let's suppose that, and I'm going to use silly numbers to make the point, that somebody has a $25 million house and they fall behind on their property taxes. In that circumstance, the state or local government is statutorily permitted to take the house to pay off the debt. But in Minnesota, which is where Geraldine Tyler is, the state could say, you are three, four, five, ten thousand dollars behind on your property taxes. We are taking the $25 million house. We are selling it and we are keeping all of the money that we generate. 
that's what we're talking about here. That's correct. It's legal in 12 states and the District of Columbia. And, you know, you call it a silly number. I mean, 25 million is, is you know, quite the number. But in this feature story that I wrote that has kind of attracted a lot of attention to this uh, over the last couple of days, there was one woman whose case I covered in Michigan who was $900 behind on a, on a payment plan for her property taxes. After uh, penalties, interest, and fees, the Oakland County, Michigan government raised that to $22,000. They sold her house for over $300,000, and then they kept the change, which totaled over $286,000. That this family, and they were just, you know, they were just told they were, were out of luck. How many states? 12 states. 12 states and the District of Columbia. Now, do you know which ones those are? Um, I have a list, but off the top of my head, you know, it's Oregon, Nebraska, South Dakota, I believe Alabama, Minnesota, obviously. Uh, Maine, New York, New Jersey, and a couple of others. And the way that they do it is different. You know, it, it kind of differs across different states. Um, some of them, it's you know, it, the proceeds go fully into government coffers. Um, in some really disturbing instances, certain states will partner with private investment companies, um, and those private investors can buy someone's property taxes behind their back. Uh, and then, you know, they follow up with a person a few years later after the property tax is like ballooned and they say, you know, you have X amount of time to pay it off. If you can't, we get your house and all the difference. That's, that's happening in Nebraska right now to a guy who fell about $600 behind on his property taxes, a private investment company bought it behind his back without any correspondence, without any notice. Three years goes by that debt is now $6,000. They give him 90 days. He can't do it. You know, he couldn't pay $588. How is he going to pay 6,000? So they seized his $60,000 home. The, the county treasurer give, gave the company the deed to his house. It's just, it's like stomach-turning stuff. So the substantive argument here that will be made in court is that it is legitimate for the state government to take the property to pay off unpaid taxes, but that it is not legitimate for the state government to absorb the entire value of the house over and above what it is owed. In other words, the substantive argument is that if somebody owes $10,000 and their home is worth $300,000, the government share stays at $10,000 and the difference, the $290,000, goes back to the person whose name is on the title deed. But obviously, that's not a constitutional argument, and it's not a statutory argument either. So we have the Supreme Court coming in. The role of the Supreme Court is not to be outraged about this in the way you and I are, or hopefully voters are, and hopefully legislators in these states are. What is the argument being made to the Supreme Court? Sure. So the primary argument being made in front of the Supreme Court is that this violates what's called the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment, which basically says the government cannot take your property without just compensation. And so part of the, the argument that you laid out is actually part of a legal argument. And I think it's important to emphasize because, as you know, as you mentioned, I've covered this topic for a while now. And, you know, the pushback I always get is, well, this person didn't pay their taxes. No one in front of the Supreme Court, the primary uh, litigator on this, her name is Christina Martin at the Pacific Legal Foundation, and I've talked to her at length about this over the course of you know quite a while. 
no one, you know, Christina nor anyone on her team is making the argument that it is that the government cannot satisfy a property tax debt. That is a different debate for another time. What is before the Supreme Court is, is it constitutional? Does it violate the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment for the government to take your property without just compensation, which would seem like a direct violation? Um, unfortunately, it has not been so straightforward in the federal courts. You know, when Geraldine Tyler went before, I believe it was the, it was either the sixth, I think it was the eighth circuit in October of 2021. And that decision came down in February of 2022. They said she had, there was not an unconstitutional taking, which is kind of just an amazing conclusion when you read the text of the constitution. Um, And it seems like the Supreme Court is interested in resolving that. How do you think this would play in a public debate? I asked that because you're looking here at 12 states that have these laws on the books. But I would bet that the vast majority of the people in those states, like me before I read your piece, like I assume most of the people listening to this podcast, have absolutely no idea that this is how the system works. And I, again, assume that if you were to put this to the public in a say, a referendum or a ballot initiative, that they would be horrified and it would lose? Or am I wrong? You know, sometimes I read this stuff, I get angry about it, and then I discover that, well, maybe people aren't too cross about it. Which direction are we going in? Are we seeing more of these laws or are we seeing fewer? Are they being abolished or are they being added? So I have a couple of thoughts. Um, We are seeing fewer of them. You know, I say there are 12 states in D.C. that allow this, and a couple of places have abolished it after public pressure and, you know, legislatures doing the right thing. When it comes to basic public sentiment, it's interesting because I do feel like this is the kind of thing that everyone can just agree is bad. You know, like, my the response to, you know, the overwhelming response, to be quite frank, to this feature story that I had come out yesterday, you know, has been from every part of the political spectrum, from the far right to the far left and everything in between. I would say they come to different conclusions on what it means. You know, I've gotten some comments from people on the left that will say, you know, this shows why housing should be a right. Or, you know, people, you know, maybe on the right who say, you know, this is why we should abolish property taxes. I have my own opinions on that. You know, I work for a libertarian magazine, so people can kind of assume where I fall. But at the end of the day, even though they're speaking different languages on, you know, what the end goal should be or what is it, what it is a reflection of, everyone seems to acknowledge, like, this is really awful that we are targeting the most vulnerable people in society and taking their stuff. Because that is what home equity theft does statistically and just by its very nature. If you cannot pay your property taxes, then it stands to reason that you are low income. Or that you are like, you know, Miss Tyler, you are, you are elderly and, you know, you might need some outside help. Or, uh, you know, you, like the man in Nebraska I mentioned, his name is Kevin Fair. You might, um, his wife came down with severe MS and he had to quit his job and he had to be a full-time caretaker. And then he started falling behind on his pro- property taxes. So, you know, he was low income and experienced a catastrophic life-altering event. It is the, the most vulnerable people in society and the government is profiting off of them simply because they can. And these people, you know, oftentimes don't have the resources to fight back. So I think that is something that people can uniformly oppose, you know, you would hope. And I think, you know, for your comment about it not yet being abolished in these these 13 areas, I think it's just um, a reflection of the fact that no one really talks about it. 
you know, I, I am the only reporter I know of on the national in the national press that has covered this consistently. And I don't, I don't say that, you know, as like a patting myself on the back, but it's just one of those, one of those issues that for some kind of confusing reason has not attracted much interest from the press. And so I think the real problem is people don't know about it. It's interesting because from what I can see here, there's no mens rea requirement in these laws. We're not talking here, at least in the vast majority of cases, about people who bought a house that they clearly couldn't afford, made bad decisions knowing that they were stretching themselves, and then got behind on their taxes and sort of put a middle finger up to the government. At least in the cases that you've discussed, there is an intervening factor. There is something that happens, a medical emergency or a job loss or a personal tragedy, and it doesn't seem that any of these laws take that into account. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're correct. And, and one of the reasons you're seeing that is because most of the people who fall behind on their property taxes but otherwise are not evicted from their home is because they these are people who often have already paid off their homes, which is why you see it happening to a lot of elderly people. Uh, I, I believe Geraldine Tyler's condo was already paid off. It was valued at $93,000. The government sold it at auction for $40,000. And like I said, kept the profits. But, you know, we don't see these people being evicted for not paying, you know, their mortgage or something like that, because it's it's already been paid. It might be like a, you know, it might be a, an asset from the family or something like that. But it, it is, as you said, usually the reflect a, a, a consequence of some life-altering event or someone who was already low income who then experiences a life altering event and just have they have their last big asset taken from them which is often you know their entire life savings are you hopeful that the supreme court will rule this unconstitutional i really am you know i think that a lot of people look to the kind of political dynamics of the court and and see that it's kind of a right leaning body i see this as something that's very cross partisan you know, I don't think this is. I think this is something conservatives would care about if they knew about it. I think this is something that the left would care about if they knew more about it. I think this is something the libertarians would care about. Everyone, left, right, center, and everything in between. Like we were saying earlier, I think they might come to different conclusions about what it says about society and you know the next steps we should take. But yeah, I think both the more liberal justices and conservative justices can look at this and see why it's flagrantly unconstitutional in violation of the Fifth Amendment. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, it's to the advantage of the plaintiffs that the court is not obliged or even allowed to try and work out what happens next. The question before the court is simple. Is this legitimate under the U.S. Constitution? It doesn't have to decide whether property taxes are good. Right, exactly. Or whether housing should be a right. It can just say this is a takings clause violation or this is not a takings clause violation as the case may be. Billy Binion, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. And now another installation of Q&A. Thank you all for all your questions. You've given me a few weeks worth. Do keep them coming. Question one. I live in the Midwest and I travel for a living. I love being in the warm Florida weather in the winter. 
However, it's brutal going there in the summer. What do you prefer? Florida winters? Florida summers? Do you dislike the brutal Florida summer heat? Or do you just deal with it? How do I deal with it? I love it. I'd be happy if I was never cold again in my life. I like the way cold places look. I like the leaves in New England in the fall. I do miss that. And I like those snowy Christmas scenes you get in movies. But I have no affection whatsoever for the weather that accompanies them. If I could be guaranteed blue sunny skies and warm weather every day for the rest of my life, even with the humidity, I'd take it no questions asked. Because the truth is, I've become a wimp. I grew up in England. I lived there for 26 years. And while I was never particularly fond of the cold, I could cope with it. But now I can't. Now I'm completely useless. I went to the Jaguars game last Saturday and I was so cold that my legs went numb and it took me about five hours to warm up when I got home. And the next day, I told people this and they asked, wow, how cold was it? And I said, 37 degrees, and they laughed in my face. That's positively balmy weather for playoff football, one guy said. Which... Yeah, maybe for him, but not for me, because I've adjusted completely. 37 degrees in Florida is an emergency. We all start buying up supplies and checking hourly for mushroom clouds. You know what I like the most? I like walking out of my front door and being hit in the face with heat. Sometimes in the summer... I go out in the middle of the day to check the mail just so I can move from the air conditioning to the wall of fire. Now, I've heard some people say that it's better to be too cold than too hot because you can always add clothes, but there are only so many clothes you can take off. Well, for a start, anyone who says there are only so many clothes you can take off has clearly never met a Floridian, but That said, it's just not true. Or at least it's not the right way of thinking about it, because what really matters is how long it takes to adjust. If I get cold, it takes me a long time to get warm again, even if I'm sitting right next to a fire or on top of an arger or on a heated seat. My bones get cold nonetheless. But if I get too hot, cooling down is instant. A breeze does it. A rotating fan does it. Air conditioning does it. And, of course, it's not that unpleasant being too hot in the first place. Question two. My question is, as a native Floridian and UF grad, how did you end up being a Gator fan? Well, 
The short answer is that I moved to Jacksonville, which also explains my support of the Jaguars. The long answer is that it took me a lot longer to get into football than it took me to get into baseball. And so by the time I was picking teams, I was down in Florida rather than in New York. Now, if I'd got into football from the beginning of my time in America, I'd likely be a New York Giants fan like my wife and like many of my friends in New York and Connecticut. As you all know, I'm a fanatical Yankees fan, which is partly Rich Lowry's fault and partly the fault of my wife's family and partly the fault of some other friends of mine who are big Yankees fans too, but which was the product of my having picked baseball up really quickly. But I just didn't get into football early enough for any of those influences to be dispositive. Football is actually a really complex game relative to most sports. And I just didn't understand it properly until more recently, let alone care about it. So my move coincided with my fandom. Now, of course, I likely wouldn't have picked up a Northeastern college football team because it's not really a thing up there. So it's possible that I'd have ended up a Gators fan anyway, even if I'd been a New York Giants fan. I actually knew about the Gators as a kid because, like many English people, we went to Florida on vacation and we picked up the local teams from TV or from people's T-shirts or what you will. One of those teams was the Miami Dolphins. There's actually a photo of me somewhere in a Miami Dolphins T-shirt aged about four. And the other team I knew about was the Gators which naturally I loved as a child because the logo and the name are so cool. So I may be post-rationalizing this, but I think I was probably destined to be a Gators fan because of that connection. Either way, I can remember making a conscious choice when I decided to start watching college football that I was going to root for the Gators because they were the local team. So I did. Question three. Are the political right and left within the US really as divided as commentators imply, or is it only on the political fringes? I'm a very far-right person, however, I have many friends that are left-wing and we never argue, let alone discuss politics. So I don't think that people are as divided as commentators imply, no. That's not the same thing as saying that everyone secretly agrees. They don't. And it's not the same thing as saying that politics doesn't matter. It does. But this idea that we're all at each other's throats all the time is a myth. On the internet, it's true. But it's not true in the real world. One of the things... I like the most about living in North Florida instead of in, say, Washington, D.C., is that people don't randomly start political arguments on social occasions here. And the the people who do do that are broadly considered to be a bit weird. If I may bring this show full circle, I have a suspicion 
that the sort of people who cannot live their lives without arguing politics all the time are the sort of people who look at Ivan Provorov and consider his unwillingness to endorse other people's speech as a terrible infraction for which he should be punished. Which is to say, they're totalitarians. Welcome to your regularly scheduled Jacksonville Jaguars update on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast for a second week because the Jaguars beat the Chargers. I am back here with John Ekdahl. Hello. Hello. John, last week I asked you at what point in the game. <laughs> I was wondering if you're going to have to. Yeah, and you said that you never really worried. I didn't. Okay, but you did worry in the Chargers game. I, there's not a chance I can pull off uh, trying to convince you that I wasn't worried. <laughs> you were convinced they were going to lose too, right? At, at 27, I'll, I'll say this. At 27 nothing, um, I was... I don't turn the TV off with, like, in the playoffs. I'm not doing that. Um, in the regular season, when they're down 40, I might flip off the TV. I'm not doing it in the playoffs. So I just sort of made myself a cocktail and sat down. And was like, I get a half of football with the Jaguars. We did... Um, a remarkable turnaround this year after the last two years. We are way ahead of schedule. We'll settle in and get one half of football before we call it a season and uh, move on to next year. And I have to say that when Lawrence hit Ingram for the touchdown before the half, I did have a little light bulb went off where I had a little bit of optimism. Not a lot. But I'm like, I've seen this team do this before. And that's kind of the play and turn that you needed it to start. So I didn't think it was going to happen. But I'm like, eh, I'm going to leave a little door ajar on this. It was interesting because it was bit by bit. So I didn't think they were going to win either. 27 nothing. But, and funny enough, people talk about natural disasters like this too, where they slowly realize bit by bit that, that it was bad. Yeah. Well... We yeah, and you're doing the math in your head as it's starting to slip away, and you're like, well, if we if we, and then it's then it's 27, and you go, all right, well, yeah. But halfway through the second quarter, uh, someone said to me in the stadium, you know, if they can get a touchdown before halftime, they'll be back in it. I thought, yeah, okay, whatever. At halftime, the lady in front of me said, maybe we need to start thinking about four yards, five yards. That's how we beat them, bit by bit. Then they come out, and everyone's saying, well, you know, if we could get a stop. Then they got the stop. And then they said, well, you know, if they could score a touchdown on the first drive of the second half, then they scored a touchdown on the first drive of the second half. Then it was, could they get another stop? And they did. Then it was, could they score another touchdown? And they did. And after a while, halfway through the fourth quarter, everyone started looking at each other saying, are they going to win this game? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think when it got to, t- what was it? When it got to a 10-point game, that's when everyone was like, okay, now this is, now this is real. Um, but, I, you know, one, one of the overlooked things about this team, and it, I guess it's easy to because not a lot of p- people catch a lot of Jaguars games and they see stats and, and things like that. And you and I know it because we watch it. This, 
I don't know what happens to this defense in the second half. It's like it's like everyone changes the uniforms, different people are put into them, and but three points in the second half. I mean, like we can we can talk all night about how great Trevor was in the second half, but that defense just locked down, and they're not back in this game. We're not sitting here talking about this game right now if that defense didn't do that. All right, so let's talk all night about Trevor. <laughs> yeah. What happened? What's your takeaway? Two um, halves, first half disaster, second half he's Tom Brady. What is that about? It, it's funny because, I, you know, when last year with Trevor, um, we say Trevor. I don't know if that's a, like obnoxious to people in the national. You know why I say Trevor? And because Jags fans call him Trevor. Right, I know. And at the game, so here's something that irritated me. And I wonder if it's because of the Duval chant that sounds like booing. The CBS report on the game said that toward the end of the second quarter, Jags fans were booing Trevor Lawrence. That's not true. It's no. not true. Yeah. Now, there was a lot of cynical talk. Um, maybe, maybe score a touchdown, guys. You know, maybe get a stop, guys. But everyone was incredibly encouraging. They were shouting, come on, Trevor. Come on, you know, Trevor, what can you do for us, Trevor? Let's go, Trevor. No one was booing Trevor Lawrence. No, because we've seen this before so much this year. Right. Um, and, and I was thinking about a lot last year, uh, Trevor, Trev. um he led the league in uh interceptions last year he had a really really tough rookie season and uh he only had eight interceptions this year and two of them were on hail mary passes at the end of blowout games so he he really tightened that up um and when we you know when you last had me on last week we we talked about a miscue and oftentimes it's trevor a lot of times it's been um travis Etienne fumbling in the first quarter but a lot of times it's, it's been a trevor mistake but it hasn't been an interception. Trevor makes loose ball kind of mistakes where he, um, he scrambles and he loses the ball. He fumbles, strip sack. Um, it hasn't, he hasn't been bitten by the interception bug at all this year. Uh, so it was so odd to see him throw four interceptions in that first, I mean, it's three in the first quarter, right? Am I going, or it wasn't all in the first quarter, right? It was three in the first quarter and one in the second quarter. I think that's right, yeah. Um, but that was very unusual for him. Now, the first one was, you know, I, I know all fans do this, but uh, the first one was a tip ball. The second one, they were screaming about a pass interference call. Oh, I have no doubt that there was pass interference yeah. on that call. And, and after that, I think he got a little rattled, and, and that'll happen in the playoffs, certainly. Um, but he, he locked down. I, I, you know, that, that performance in the second half was like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and if you look at Justin Herbert's production from that game, four, like full four quarters to, to Trevor Lawrence's two quarters, they're very similar. <laughs> it's wild. I mean, it, it's hard to, th- you know, when you're looking back, it, it's such a blur, but I think Herbert only had one touchdown pass that game. Trevor had four. Um, so he really, he really came in strong in the second half. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't know that I'm going to see, well, we'll get to the Kansas City game, I guess, but um, but yeah, I, I think he's kind of turned a corner. I got, I got the jitters out of him. All right, so Kansas City, favorites for the Super Bowl. Nine and a half, eight and a half point favorites. Started at eight and a half. I don't know if it moved or not, yeah. They're obviously a terrific team. They're actually a team that's really difficult to dislike as well. And he's a genius. Yeah. Can they win? Uh. The Chiefs can win for sure. <laughs> um, can I'm not. 
I'm not counting out the Jaguars in any game from here on out. I, I really think that they can beat any team left in the playoffs. Whether they do or not, of course, is why we tune in. But um, I think that it's funny. I was watching some of the pregame stuff, and they were like, uh, you know, the Jaguars were negative five on turnovers um, against the Chargers. If they try to do that in Kansas City and Arrowhead, that's not going to go. Well, obviously, like <laughs> you have to you have to button that up. And, um, you know, that's the one thing we didn't see out of this team that we're used to seeing in the Charger game was that the defense didn't have any turnovers. It didn't have any forced you know, big, big time moments, a strip sack, any of that stuff. Um, so I think they're going to need to have some of that. And they had that in the first game against, against the Chiefs. So. so let's suppose that they beat the Chiefs. They somehow beat the Chiefs. What Who color you... is Trevor Lawrence's statue? <laughs> <inside>? <laughs> Who do you want, the Bengals or the Bills? It, it's funny. Uh, both teams looked really rusty this weekend. So I don't know. I think without that crazy play at the goal line, I, th- I think the Bengals were in trouble. And, and towards the end of the, the Dolphins game, I, Allen, Allen had a lot of really big mistakes in that game. So I think that there's opportunity there for, for either one. I'm not sure which one I'd rather. It's probably a weather thing. I probably wouldn't want to play in Buffalo, I guess. But it's almost... You know, Peterson talked about this, playing with house money and all that. I, I really don't have a preference just because we're going to be facing these guys for the next, like, 15 years. So you're going to have to beat both of them at some point to get to where you want to go, whether it's this year or next year or whether we ever do it. I have no idea. But I'm not, I, I'm not really picking my poison because I just see these guys as being around forever. It's funny because the Bills game was at 1 o'clock. And the... Ravens game was at eight. Yes. But if you overlay them, there would have been a point at the beginning of the fourth quarter when you would have assumed that the Dolphins would have gone through and played the Chiefs and the Jacksonville Jaguars would have had a home game against the Ravens. And we'd be it was pretty close. And we'd be pitching a ten outside of TIA bank. I know. Yeah, yeah, it, it turned in the fourth quarter, as did the Jaguars game. So it's been, uh, that's kind of a hallmark of, of the playoffs. They, they were all good games. Everyone was expecting blowouts except for the Jaguars game. The Jaguars game looked like a blowout, and the others were all tight, which is kind of funny. So you can genuinely say now that if they lose to the Chiefs, we didn't expect it, and it was all worth it. I think so. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, the same sort of thing. I will be miserable for a while. Um, but it's, it's a remarkable step in the right direction for a franchise that has had four wins before this year, the last two years. So uh, it's, it's all going in the right direction. It's, just, it's not just the winning. It's just the culture. Every, all these guys are so fun. They're really likable people. The coaching staff, um, you know... We mentioned just to each other, the last game of the season last year, I I don't know if a lot of people know this, fans of the Jaguars were dressing up in clown outfits for the final game of the season to protest the front office and the ownership. And this year we were playing for the division title, so a lot can change in a year. And that's, that's the difference between like the NFL and Major League Baseball. All right, well, I profoundly hope that we're here next week yeah. talking about the AFC Championship game. Well, if not, we can 
take 20 or 30 minutes to break down the draft what the Jaguars need in free agency. <laughs> exactly. <And> exactly. <laughs> it's to slowly evolve into a Jacksonville Jaguars yeah. podcast. And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you to my guest, Billy Binion. Thank you to you for your questions. I'm off to Kansas City, where everything is up to date, including, hopefully, the Jacksonville Jaguars' understanding of how to stop Patrick Mahomes. See you next week. <laughs>